The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. God's word for our meditation today comes from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word through his apostle Paul. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out. For the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let us ask him to write it on our hearts. Father, we thank you for not only the words that your spirit has given to us through the Apostle Paul, but for the way your sovereign risen son, by his irresistible vision and the work of the spirit, captured this self-righteous rebel's heart, Saul of Tarsus, to make him not only a speaker of the gospel of grace, but a case study, a demonstration of the gospel of grace and the most amazing. How good that is for us to see in Saul your mercy to a sworn enemy who hated Messiah and tried to blot out his name from the face of the earth. How good it is for us to see one who sought to establish his own righteousness by law-keeping and found it to be utterly a dead end, having achieved as much as could be achieved, and yet realizing that it was all loss and rubbish. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this semester, as we've thought about various parts of Philippians, we have been seeing how God does teach us by example through the Apostle Paul and through others. We saw Paul suffer with joy in the first chapter, and we watched Timothy worry about others, uh, more concerned with the gospel. 
But of course, supremely, we saw Jesus, the servant of the Lord, and not simply an example of servanthood, really, but really the servant of the Lord who by his wounds brought us healing and whose spirit inserts and instills and nourishes in us the mind of Christ. And in this text, Paul again takes us back to himself now. Uh, He rehearses his distinguished resume in Judaism, not to draw attention really to himself, but again to draw our, our, our view away from Paul to Christ. Uh, Paul is really implicitly saying to his friends in Philippi, be like me, uh, but not in terms of any kind of self-motivated righteousness, but he's saying, be like me, look away from your own righteousness, look away to Christ. Throw away, like repulsive garbage, anything that competes with Jesus for your trust, for your resting in your feverish quest for God's approval. Paul's testifying, what I thought I was weaving as robes of righteousness, they were actually defiled rags. As I read this passage, I think of that uh, amazing text in Isaiah 64 where the prophet says, Oh Lord, would you only rend the heavens, tear the heavens and come down. But then in just a few verses later, he says, When you do that, Lord, when you do that, we will see that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. But a few chapters earlier, Isaiah had also said that when the Lord comes, he will clothe us with the robes of righteousness. Not our righteousness. His, the gift of his grace. So Paul rehearses his resume here, not to say, look at me, how great I am, but to look, to say, in effect, if the law could bring us there, I would have been there. This is no sour grapes, uh, statement by the Apostle Paul. You remember that Aesop's fable where the fox could never reach the grapes so he finally just decided, oh well, they're probably sour anyway. It's not as though Paul is saying, I tried and tried and couldn't make it. He said, I tried and did better than anybody could do. I'm not a sore loser. I can go toe-to-toe with the best of the Judaizers. And believe me, that route is always, always a dead end. Saul thought he was so so strong, so right. He thought he had confidence in the flesh. He says, if, I had, if anybody did, I did. And he looks back over his heritage. He lists four things that qualify him in terms of his family tree and his heritage. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the right day. That shows he's born an Israelite uh, on that eighth day of birth. Of the people of Israel, a descendant from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Israel. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the tribe, obviously, from which King Saul came from, and perhaps Saul was named after him. But it was also the tribe, along with Judah, that later in the Old Testament stayed loyal to the house of David. And then he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which means, essentially, even though he grew up in the dispersion in Tarsus, his parents were so concerned that he would know and be able to read the scriptures in the language in which the Spirit of God breathed them out, that he was steeped in Hebrew language and in that distinctive culture that God had defined for his covenant people. Now, I know Americans think Paul shouldn't get credit for any of those things because we're individualists. We think people should only get credit for their own achievements. 
But most peoples of the world are more realistic than we are and we know that we are a combination of the factors that have come into us that are beyond our control. And so Paul is not embarrassed to list these as qualifications that show that he, if anyone, had reason to boast in the flesh. But then he does add three. Four plus three, seven. That's a kind of a cool number. Hmm? He's not numbering them, but uh, three more that are his own personal conviction, commitments here. He is, as to the law of Pharisee, that's all needs to be said on that, right? Pharisees were well known, as we hear elsewhere in the New Testament, for their rigor in not only defining and and observing the 613 commandments in the ancient scriptures, but building a fence around the Torah, kind of a secondary barrier, so there wouldn't be any trespassing in the commandments. Uh, Paul's contemporary, Josephus, also a Pharisee, described their party as the party that was esteemed by their fellow Jews as the most skillful in the exact explication of our laws. But Paul was not only a Pharisee, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Not every Pharisee took it that far. In fact, Paul's mentor, Gamaliel, as you remember in Acts, urged the Sanhedrin to kick a sign of a, a kind of wait-and-see attitude about these people who were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. But Saul was more zealous than that, and especially because of Stephen's announcing that the temple was passé. And, of course, Stephen's declaring in his defense speech in Acts 7 that the Messiah, the righteous one, was this Jesus who had been, well, as Saul probably knew well, had been a little disrespectful of some of the rabbinic tradition and then worse yet was executed in a way that emblemized the fact that he was under the curse of God hanged on a tree so Saul was inflamed to zeal and you know the story how he went out not only in Jerusalem but elsewhere to try to arrest imprison intimidate and eradicate that Jesus sect so he sums it all up as to righteousness under the law blameless Is he claiming sinlessness? I don't think so necessarily. Certainly as an apostle now, he knows that the law serves to expose the sinful hearts of everybody. But I suspect even before Christ laid hold of him, he knew that he hadn't reached sinless perfection. But blamelessness was that combination of conscientious effort to keep the commandments and conscientious attendance to the ways that God provided for cleansing when you slipped through repentance, through sacrifice. No one could meet, much less match, Paul's record. And yet Paul says, for all of those achievements, I now see them as worthless. No, actually worse than worthless. What I thought were robes of righteousness weaving that I was weaving for myself turned out to be those defiled, bloodied rags that are repugnant in the presence of the holy God. And so everything that I counted gain, verse 7, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. That's banking terminology. I thought I was making deposits in my account, but every deposit I made was not only worth nothing, it was a debit. It put me further in debt. And then Paul gets a little bit more graphic. I suffered the loss of all these things, and I count them as... Rubbish. 
Hmm, translators wrestle with that word. Do you hear the rubbish? Do you smell the rubbish aroma? Uh, it's at least that. Uh, King James Version, as you know, is a little bit more pungent. Dung. It may be either. It's, it's applied to both in ancient Greek. Uh, the term scubala may even refer to the garbage that is thrown to the dogs. Paul had called the Judaizers dogs, which was an insult that Jews often threw at Gentiles. Now Paul says, this is the stuff that we throw to the dogs and that the dogs nose around that is defiling and repugnant. Paul says, all that I thought was so beautiful is ugly, repulsive, and objectively defiling before the holy face of God. What made the difference? Well, he's referring, isn't he, to the discovery on the Damascus Road. Uh, He had found a new treasure, or maybe I should say the treasure found him. In the next text, he talks about wanting to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of him. And that certainly is the way Paul thought of that confrontation when the glorious risen Lord Jesus appeared to him in blinding light. Jesus seized him. And because of that great treasure, Paul is like the man in the little parable that Jesus tells who comes across a treasure buried in a field and quickly hides it. And goes off and sells everything to buy the field so he can get the treasure. Paul says, I'm willing to sell everything for the sake of this treasure, this amazing treasure. An infinitely better righteousness than anything I could weave together on my own. And not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But a righteousness, verse 9, that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Earlier, Paul fit the template that he used to describe his own kinsmen in Romans 10 when he said that they were trying to establish their own righteousness and refused to submit to the righteousness of God because that submission would require utter, utter complete dependence upon the righteousness of another and the blood of another to cleanse from sin. But now Paul says that's the only righteousness. That's the infinitely valuable righteousness. It's the only thing in which I know I can rest my heart. So I look away from me, away from my heritage, away from my upbringing, away from my external circumcision and my internal zeal, and I've come to rest in Christ Jesus my Lord. He's been justified. Shorter Catechism describes justification as an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Where do you suppose they got that idea? Well, From texts like this, for sure. In the amazing exchange of grace, Jesus received the curse and condemnation and execution that Paul suddenly realized Paul deserved, Saul deserved. And Paul received the divine approval and welcome for complete obedience that Jesus deserved. He's now clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness and the shame of his defiance and his self-reliance, Paul now knew, was rubbish that had been carried by Christ down the hard road of obedience, even to death, death on a cross. 
as Paul had described that obedience in the previous chapter. So Paul now rejoiced to know Christ. Notice the way he describes it here. He's not just rejoicing in the treasure of justification, that declarative, legal, forensic act of God by which Paul's guilt is removed and he's credited with Christ's righteousness. That certainly is central here, but it's not just forgiveness. It's not just a justified status. The treasure is Christ. Christ himself, I want to gain him. I want to be found in him. I want to know him. And that's why the fact that Paul is resting in Christ's righteousness doesn't lull him into a kind of a spiritual stupor of complacency. The Judaizers, who had somehow reached Philippi, even though there was no synagogue there, they wanted to dog Paul's steps anywhere he could. The Judaizers, and really all legalists, are suspicious of grace that is this free, grace that is this lavish. They suspect that if you assure people that our welcome from the Father is not contingent on our performance, we're going to kick back. We're not going to care. We're going to say, as presumably Paul had heard said, let us sin all the more, that grace may abound. Paul says, you haven't even begun to understand what's going on here. What I've already tasted of the mercy of Christ whets my appetite for everything that Christ has for me. Not only forgiveness, not only that righteous declaration, not only the welcome of the Father, but the transformation of my whole life so that not only is the guilt and the penalty of sin out of the picture, but someday even the presence of sin will be out of my life and even now the power of sin has been broken. It's not gone, but the tyranny of sin has been broken over my heart. And I get to know Jesus. I get to know him more. So resting in Jesus' righteousness spurred Paul on to run for, as he will say in the next few verses, we'll come to those in a few weeks, to run for that prize for which God had already called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. He was secure in the Savior's grace and therefore longed to know the Savior ever more fully. And as he said in the first chapter, to have Christ glorified in his body, whether by life or by death. What are your rags that you thought were robes? That you may still sometimes think are robes. Yet, I know, we know theologically, we're not to trust in anything other than Jesus. But there are still those times when the unease of our hearts tend to look in all the wrong directions for assurance that we're okay. Is it academic achievement? Is it orthodoxy and theological discernment who can, that enables you to point out the least flaw in someone else's doctrine? Is it effectiveness in ministry? Is it a reputation for integrity and compassion and kindness and boldness? Those are all good things if they're the fruit of the fact that you're resting in Jesus. Otherwise, they're rubbish. Otherwise, they're stinking garbage, repugnant and defiling. So be like Paul. Be like Paul. Throw away the rags 
and relish the robes of Christ's righteousness as he does here. Rest in what Christ has done and that will spur you on to love and serve and to care for truth and to care for others and to be a person of integrity out of love for the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, this text is too, too rich for us to take in in these few moments, maybe in a a lifetime. But we thank you for even this sketch that we've seen of the process by which you led your apostle Paul from pride and self-trust and self-satisfaction delusional though it was, to discovering that what he thought were robes of righteousness were rags of defilement and finding instead the great treasure, the great gift of the righteousness that you give by faith to those who rest in Jesus. And Father, we pray that as that reality gets deeper into our hearts, it will have the effect that it had in your servant Paul to spur us on to run, to long, to know Christ more fully, to be found in him more consistently in every dimension of our lives, to gain him in all of his fullness, both, as Paul tells us here, as that entails fellowship in his suffering, as well as sharing in the power of his resurrection. Write these words on our hearts by your great and mighty Holy Spirit that we might be the true circumcision who trust and rest and boast in Christ and worship by the Spirit of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.